This episode of the American Birding Podcast is sponsored by our friends at Beautyo Books. Remember that ABA members get a discount on all orders from Beautyo Books. You can check them out at beautyobooks.com. Hello and welcome to the American Birding Podcast from the American Birding Association. I'm Nate Swick. It's been just over a week since the birding community first heard the awful news about the unexpected death of Tom Johnson. If you're not on social media, this might be the first you've heard of it. And if so, I'm sorry to be the bearer of that bad news. It has been a period of collective mourning for a person who was a giant, both literally and figuratively, in our community and to many perhaps the finest field birder in North America. I didn't know Tom as well as some. I'd run into him on a couple occasions, and he had been a guest on this podcast a few times. I knew him to be an exceptional person for about as many reasons as a human can be exceptional. He was a white-hot, skilled birder and photographer, a thoughtful researcher, a profoundly curious and insightful thinker about not only birds and bird identification, but the birding world in general. And there have been a lot of social media tributes from his friends in the last week that have touched on all these things. But the ones that resonate the most have to do with his humanity. Because when you are as good at something as Tom was about birds, it's easy to have a little bit of ego about it. It's not always intentional. It's just that when you know so much, you can come off as haughty or intimidating. And the thing about Tom is that he never did, which is remarkable. I first met Tom at an ABA event in Philadelphia a few years ago, and at the time, I had been an admirer from afar for some time. Tom's photography and storytelling skills were exceptional, and I'll be honest, seeing someone like that in the flesh can be a little daunting. Don't meet your heroes, right? But Tom came right up to me and right off the bat told me how much he enjoyed the podcast, which obviously the way to disarm someone is to compliment them. That stuff works. But we started talking about audio production. He had been working on the Outburning web series, which was an outlet for his interest in videography, which as with just about anything else Tom did was groundbreaking. He was one of those people that was not only able to see the horizons, the questions that needed answering, but he also had the skill and the will to push beyond them so that other people could see those new horizons. I had him on the podcast a few times. I never quite found the right home for him here, but he took on everything I asked of him with good humor and with his incredible insight. I'd hoped he would be on more, but as the pandemic eased and his tour guide schedule ramped up, um, we just couldn't make the schedule work out. But I will always think fondly of the times when I was able to get him on because as fantastic as Tom is, it's always nice when you get to share that with the people that listen here. He deserved as big an audience as a person could get. So with that in mind, I have pulled some highlights from Tom's appearances here to share. Again, you can hear him talking about rare birds, about birding in spring, and from a This Month in Birding where Tom was a panelist. You'll also hear some other friends in there too, Amy Davis and Marky Mutchler in particular. And I, I apologize if the audio feels a little haphazard. That, you know, that's, that's my fault. I did throw him into a lot of different situations. But I, I think Tom's character, his skill, and his good humor shine through all of it. Um, just huge hugs to all those affected by this tragic loss, the whole ABA staff and board 
um, joins in the outpouring of love and support to Tom's family. His fiance, Melissa Roach, herself an accomplished birder and bird researcher, uh, her family to Tom's colleagues at Field Guides and the Cape May birding community, both places where Tom was a, a huge and influential personality and who are feeling this loss of a close friend and a valued colleague particularly hard. While this loss stings and, and will for a while, it's a good opportunity to consider the things that we love about birding and which were so emblematic of the way Tom approached it. With a deep curiosity for and love of birds and nature uh, and a passion for sharing it with others. So we should all bird like Tom when we get the opportunity to do so. I hope you get an opportunity soon. Now, on to this week's Rare Birds. This is your Rare Bird Focus for the end of July 2023. It's not often that we predict a Rare Bird's occurrence with such specificity here. Limpkins aside, that's an easy one. But a few weeks ago, Alvaro Jaramillo on the podcast to talk about El Nino's effects on birds mentioned that swallow-tailed gull was a good possibility on the West Coast. And lo and behold, not long after, a swallow-tailed gull turned up in Santa Barbara County, California. This is the fourth ABA area record and California's third of this Galapagos Island near endemic, notably the last record of the species from Washington in 2017 was in late summer as well. And though that was not an El Nino year, it was at the time the hottest non-El Nino year on record. Other firsts of note for the last couple weeks, Quebec's first record of lesser sand plover was discovered during a shorebird survey on Anacosti Island in the St. Lawrence River. The bird looks to be of the East Asian breeding Mongolus subspecies called Siberian sand plover by some authorities. The site, though, is not accessible to birders. Idaho's first record of prairie warbler was seen this week in Jefferson County. This makes Hawaii the only U.S. state yet to record the species, and I do not imagine that that will be coming anytime soon. Alberta is the only Canadian province that has not yet recorded prairie warbler, and I think that will probably come sooner rather than later. And in Oklahoma, that state's first record of cactus wren was recorded near the town of Kenton, that is in the extreme western end of the Oklahoma panhandle. This mostly sedentary species has been recorded agonizingly close to the Oklahoma border in years past, even as close as six miles to the Oklahoma border in North Texas. This observation, it seems, was only a matter of time. Those are the recent highlights, but for the full list, check out the ABA Rare Bird Alert on Fridays at aba.org slash RBA. You can also follow along with all the Rare Bird news in our ABA Rare Bird Alert group on Facebook and in ABA community. So here are some Tom Johnson highlights from the podcast. I tried to leave some context in so it's not so jarring to drop into a conversation, but we start by talking about the spate of 2021 records of small bill Lelania in the ABA area. I don't know. Is three the bare minimum for a phenomena? <laughs> maybe. <laughs> there were two in the fall, so maybe that's a thing. Yeah. Amazing story. Austral migrant, bird from South America, Southern Kona, South America, turning up in North America. Amazing story. So many people got to see it. And also like kind of the bookend nature of the very first one being in the Chicago area. And then the last of the three that came in yeah, just wild. Yeah. Isn't it? Isn't it? It's these sort of coincidences that are so amazing and just in birding generally. Cool, cool stuff. Obviously, yeah, very, very high on, on anyone's list, I would think. Yeah. How about you, Tom? Well, I was going to just uh, add on the small build Alania was like a, a 
it was it was sort of my five point five or six on my list. Oh, um, okay. All since right. Amy went with it, I'll I'll go with a different number five. Um, <laughs> conditional <laughs> conditional lists here. Um, I right. think it's it's really cool, especially the the record that surfaced on iNaturalist here, um, which also factored into a an ABA first record um, later in two thousand twenty one with the Bat Falcon. Mm-hmm. Um, but just the fact that there are so many people out there taking photographs of things that catch their eye and then being able to sort of tap into the internet hive mind for identification. I think we're going to see more records like this. Um, And as people kind of get their eye in on what these Elanias look like, um, you know, even people that have never been to the Southern cone, haven't seen a small build Elania in life, but there are lots of people that are developing these, uh, experiences through looking at photos online. And I, th- I think mm-hmm. this is going to help detect more of these really cryptic uh, austral migrants in years to come. Tom, what's your number five? Uh, number five is actually a bird that I didn't even know about until this month, January 2022. And that's because uh, I read an article by Christian Nunes of oh. Colorado about an experience he had last year in the Rockies in arapaho roosevelt national forest in mid-july and uh, christian had gone up and was doing some camping and also recorded some crossbills that were uh, around his his campsite and turns out after some uh, analysis after the fact that the, the the flight calls of these birds match up with kasha crossbill the previously thought to be endemic to southern idaho uh (laughs) relatively newly described species and i just thought this was a really cool record for a couple of reasons it kind of underscores the importance of making field recordings uh even if you're just documenting what you you think at the time may be the the regular species the regular type of bird for your area with a little bit of additional investigation you might find out wow this is like actually a changing our uh, our fundamental understanding of what this this bird is all about you know kasha crossbill is uh, thought to have evolved kind of in isolation uh, in the absence of tree squirrels in two mountain ranges in in kasha county uh, kasha county in southern idaho and um, the idea that there are actually uh, a few of them out wandering around in the intermountain west i think is is really 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 cool so kudos to christian for making those recordings and and uh, coming back and revisiting that record in in uh, in retrospect. Yes, in uh, in second place for me is uh, a bird that Doug Gotchfeld found in Prospect oh, Park in Brooklyn Man, at the beginning of April, actually April first. Uh, so you know, who knows if this was <laughs> no for real or if he was yeah. just making this up as a <laughs> as a prank. But um, no, the reality is he he found this uh, unusual looking Martin Progny Martin that. Um, as best he or anyone can tell, is a gray-breasted marten. Um, and this bird stuck around for a few days and flew around in front of hundreds, maybe even thousands of people uh, walking around in Prospect Park in, uh, you know, right in the middle of New York City. And uh, it, was, it was an incredible bird. Um, it was pretty clear that it was uh, much smaller than would be expected for a purple marten. Mm-hmm. And uh, Doug did did really well to to pick it out and stay with it and, and document it. And he actually managed to make an audio recording of it and 
the visual field marks and the the audio is is pretty consistent with gray-breasted martins from Central America. So it's just an incredible record. There, there are mm-hmm. a few uh, previous uh, North American or ABA, I should say, records um, of specimens that were collected in South Texas. But in terms of modern records, it's it's pretty much a blank slate for gray-breasted martin, even though it's a, a very common bird in in much of the New World tropics. Let's let's talk about the big one. Uh, I think this number one was the same uh, for all of us because we haven't talked about it yet. Um, the extraordinary travails of the uh, stellar sea eagle across the continent, finally in Maine, where it has been present for a couple weeks now, or about a week, week and a half or so. Alaska last year, Texas maybe, but certainly Quebec, New Brunswick, Nova Scotia, Massachusetts, and finally Maine. Um, It helps that it is one of the most dramatic birds of prey in the world, a bird that so many people have seen on nature documentaries, in books, and dreamed about turning up uh, in the northeast of the ABA area, uh, eastern Canada and New England. Um, incredible, incredible record, incredible story. I know, uh, Tom, you've seen it. Amy, did you get up there to see it as well? Um, I am hoping to make that trip in the next few days. Hey, who knows? <laughs> it may still be there. Um, in your wildest, vagrant, considering dreams, would you have expected this bird to turn up where it did? Yeah, no. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> uh, I have the same answer. No, I, I, uh, I've been thinking about this a lot and this, this is the sort of bird that, uh, you know, I, I'd feel really excited to to even have a chance to see one in Western Alaska if that that ever came to happen. Um, but no, I never really, never, never really dreamed that one was going to make it to the the Eastern lower 48 or, or Eastern Canada. So this is just, just a shock to me. And, uh, Tim Healy was the New York area birder who did a lot of the detective work to determine that this this bird had traveled from Denali to eastern the eastern part of the continent. Tim Healy, yes, yeah. Tim did a, a lot of uh, legwork looking at the the yeah. wear of the the primaries and the the amount of white in the wings. And um, yeah, I think there's a pretty compelling case to be made that the the bird that was originally photographed on the Denali Highway in Interior Alaska uh, may actually be the same yeah. uh, stellar sea eagle that showed up. In uh, in Eastern Canada and then in New England more recently, yeah, um, lots of consistencies there with the the wing pattern for sure. Yeah, and that was that bird was in Denali in November of 2019, no, 2020. 2020. So it was uh, you know almost uh, over a year ago, well over a year ago, and uh, has been kind of I guess tooling around North America. What are your thoughts about the Texas sighting, which very much seems to be an outlier, but it was photographed at a, a reservoir on the Texas Gulf Coast. What are your thoughts as to whether this bird is the same one that people are seeing in Eastern Canada? Like, I'm I'm open to that idea. I think that it is as likely as any other any of the other prospects that have been put out, like that being a two birds or some bird that escaped from a from a some captivity in some capacity. I don't know what to think about that bird. It's such a weird outlier for this whole story. Yeah, um, that that Texas. Uh, record where it was it was photographed um, on a perch. Uh, I think that was March of last year, March, March 2021. Yeah. 
And as far as I'm aware, there aren't any flight photos with with mm-hmm. spread open That's wings. Good. So as you say, this is going to be kind of left to speculation whether mm-hmm. this is the same individual or not. I know the the Texas Bird Records Committee has already endorsed that record. Yep. It's mm-hmm. accepted. And um, I guess my answer is why not? Yeah. I, um, yeah. You know, that's sort of where I am. How many of these things can really be flying around out, out in the wild in the, you know, the, the well-populated areas of North America? Yeah. I, I don't, I don't really have a good explanation for it. For sure. For sure. It's, it's such a wild record and uh, which I would think would be unbelievable, almost unbelievable if the bird, if Stellar Seagull hadn't turned up in Eastern Canada and uh, is still present on the main coast. Um, uh, yeah, I don't have any other better explanation. So one of the great uh, bird records mysteries of all time for the ABA area. We do have a few. I mean, if a citrine wagtail can turn up in Mississippi, maybe a stellar sea eagle can turn up in, in Texas. Who knows? Yeah. It should be noted at the time of the recording of this podcast, where uh, it's the 27th of January, mm-hmm. the stellar sea eagle has been MIA in right? Maine since Monday, the 24th of January. Okay. So... Look out your window. It could be listening <laughs> right, to this right. podcast through your window. No matter window where right you now. are in the world, why not? <laughs> Tom, you went you went and saw it. What is it like seeing this bird? It was absolutely incredible. You know, first of all, there there are lots of people around um looking for it. Um, which was it's sort of a convivial, exciting atmosphere to be in. Um, but then just Getting to see it, it is a it is a supremely large bird. Um, <laughs> Looks like a total behemoth. Yeah, yeah, no yeah. It's absolutely huge. I got to see it in flight um, with bald eagle and with with common ravens, and it it really made both of those birds look very very small. Um, wow! And as we all know, those are not small birds. <laughs> yeah, so it was, it's a, an incredibly striking bird, and uh, yeah, wanted to just thank my parents for uh, for hosting. Oh, nice. Um, a small group of friends when we went up there uh, that made our uh, our ability to to go look for it a little bit easier. So that, yeah. was, that was great. I think the extent to which this bird has captured a lot of people, even in a non-birding world, uh, is really phenomenal. You know, we've seen stories in, in a lot of major uh, media publications. It's amazing. There's been so many stories on uh, national news outlets mm-hmm. about this bird. Yeah, it goes to show that the eagles are... I don't know. Stellar seagull in particular is just such an imposing bird, and I think a lot of a lot, a lot of people are somewhat familiar with it. Um, maybe you know, for such a relatively range restricted species, you know, East Asia, uh, Korea, and Japan, um, this is a relatively well known bird. You know, it's well photographed. A lot of people have seen it in books and, and movies. Um, people sort of know, and you know, I think people intuitively get this is a massive eagle with a giant yellow bill. Um, it's cool, no matter what. You know, look at people who love bald eagles. This one's even bigger. <laughs> this is even bigger and better. Yeah. Have you seen the eagle? Have you seen the eagle? Right. Capital. Have capital you letters. seen the eagle? <laughs> yeah. I think it's worth noting, you know, if, you, if you're not familiar with the, the range of this bird, go check out a map. Go pull up Birds of the World and, uh, uh, or eBird and, and just check it out. It's got a tiny range over mm-hmm. there in East Asia. And there are only something like 5,000 of these, these birds on the planet in the wild. And uh, it's, it's quite a rare bird. And to have one of them kind of go on walkabout and make its way all the way across North America to the East Coast is, uh, is just truly surprising. Yeah. I think when I think about visual ID of water thrushes, 
Um, I've gotten to know these birds a bit over the years, and occasionally I'll run into a water thrush that that kind of stumps me. But I like to to sort of start off by getting an overall impression of what's going on with the bird. Um, Northern water thrush usually looks a little bit more compact and small mm-hmm. build. And Louisiana water thrush often strikes me as being like really large build and large headed as well. And if there's like a sort of magical field mark with the water thrushes, I really like to to look at two points on the bird that you can you can usually see at almost any time. And that's the the eyebrow, the pale eyebrow, mm-hmm. and the kind of the rear lower flanks of the bird. And on northern water thrush, these are often kind of tinged yellowish, both the eyebrow and the whole pale part of the underparts. On Louisiana water thrush, there's almost always a pretty striking contrast between the white eyebrow and then this kind of pinkish salmon color that's isolated on the on the lower rear flank. So that's like mm-hmm. the sort of the the jacket pockets, that area of the the water thrush. And I think if you you think of water th- uh, northern water thrush as having you know low or no contrast between the eyebrow and the flank, and Louisiana water thrush as having high contrast between the white eyebrow and the the buffy flank, I think that can really help you solve I don't know ninety plus percent of your your water thrush ID problems. Having to like scan through and look for those differences um, is kind of my next move for those big groups of birds. Of course, when they're flying and they're a mile away, it can be a lot harder. (laughs) Blackbird spa, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) I think when I'm watching big flocks of blackbirds flying around, um, my my first reaction is to try to get a hold of of what the main species in the flock Mm. is. Sometimes Mm -hmm. around here, that's common grackle. Sometimes it's brown-headed cowbird. And usually the, the things that combined to, to help form those impressions are sort of the, the bird's general shapes. So often the, the length of the tail projecting yeah. beyond the wings, mm-hmm. the density of the birds in the flock. So if you see a big flock of cowbirds and they're flying together, they often pack yes. a lot more tightly yeah. than mm-hmm. common grackle, for example. And those sorts of, of differences really help uh, tease apart you know, different species in a single flock. In New Jersey, where rusty blackbird is relatively uncommon, they tend to segregate away from the other blackbirds in most cases. Every once in a while, you'll see a rusty mixed in with with red wings or or cowbirds, but more more often than not, it's it's ten or fifteen birds that are kind of off by themselves mm-hmm. in the wet woods. It's not quite the not quite the same thing as being uh, you know in the the central United States and the Great Plains where you might have hundreds or even thousands of, of rusties moving together in the springtime. Yeah, that's the way it is here in North Carolina yeah. as well. Um, yeah, the rusties do like to, to separate themselves. The shape of the birds when they're flying is such a great tool. You know, very early on in my birding career, someone described common grackles to me as ducks flying backwards. And um, because they've <laughs> got that big keel shaped tail that look, kind of looks like a duck head. And um, yeah, that's stuck with me so much. And, you know, cowbirds are such little compact finchy type blackbirds compared to kind of more lankier rusties and, and red wings. Definitely. Yeah, I think that's right. And you'll you'll even notice differences in the the speed and the interval between flaps. Mm. So like cowbirds, for mm-hmm. example, have really, really fast intervals, really explosive little flaps, and they 
they flap really quickly and repeatedly. And grackles, if you look at them side by side with cowbirds, flap much more slowly. Having to like scan through and look for those differences um, is kind of my next move for those big groups of birds. Flocks of birds moving. Tom, you mentioned earlier that waterfowl are moving quite a bit up in Cape May. I think that's a, that's a thing that a lot of people across the continent are seeing. Um, waterfowl, one of the first birds to move every single spring. So there's a lot of birds in the air, a lot of just birds out in odd places in general, a lot of weird looking ducks. When you're sort of approaching maybe a flock of distant ducks, what are the things that you're sort of thinking about as you go about trying to identify those birds? You know, this is something that I was thinking about as recently as just this morning here in Cape May. Um, this is the time of year when you can go out and on a lake or uh, in the marshes, you can look out and see maybe 10 or even 15 species of waterfowl all together. And when there are hundreds or even thousands of birds, it can be kind of overwhelming. So what I like to do when I arrive kind of on one of these vistas of waterfowl is to just just scan around and and try to get an understanding of what what the dynamic is. Maybe you've got a, a big flock of American black ducks, or or there are hundreds of common mergansers, or something like that. You kind of get a feel for what the the dominant species are, and then start out by by washing your your scope or your binoculars back and forth over the whole flock, and just trying to see if if anything really jumps out at you as as being unusual or or, uh, you know, warranting further study. And then I usually, if, if I do that and I, I don't see anything that really jumps out as, um, as unusual at that point, I'll circle back and then do kind of a systematic scan of, of every individual I can see. And, uh, you know, fortunately we're not talking in most cases, I'm not talking about tens of thousands of ducks, but more in the couple hundred mm-hmm. to a thousand range. So, so looking one by one at, at individual birds is, is a manageable task <laughs> in those situations. And at that, at that point, this time of the year, you can go through things like flocks of green wing teal and try to tease out Eurasian teal or, or intergrade teal, or maybe a big flock of widgeons. You can try to look for rusty headed Eurasian widgeon in the, in the mix. So those, that's kind of my general strategy for approaching big flocks of waterfowl? For the most part, um, that's how I go about a lot of our flocks. When we get several, like a few weeks back, I had 40,000 shoveler. And so looking through groups like that, it is a lot more difficult, like you were mentioning, to go one by one looking for (laughs) what I have to do when I go through these, because as much as I would love to look at every single bird, um, I just have to go back and forth over these groups multiple times seeing if there's something that jumps out. Um, and usually I'll try and be like, okay, I'm going to actually count the ducks when I do this um, and see if I can get something more better than uh, just a general estimate. And in doing that, um, I usually pick out maybe, okay, there's deeper water over here. I can see some divers. So maybe I'll hang out on the spot a little bit longer because divers go underwater. Maybe I missed something the first time through or the second time or even the third time through. And so kind of understanding where in your flock different groups Mm. are can help you um, understand maybe other birds are hanging out with them. Marky, I had a question about that idea of of birds jumping out um, when you're scanning through a flock. And I I was just wondering, do you think that that is primarily based on your your previous experiences with the common species? And so Mm. when you see something that that really doesn't fit your, your field 
you know, your, um, your memory of common species, then you sort of draw more attention to it. I, I always am thinking about this when I go to places where I don't have a lot of experience with, with the birds. And so I end up usually then starting out by looking at things one by one instead of this sort of more generalized holistic approach. Is that, is that kind of how you think of that process? Yeah, definitely. I think it goes with a lot of groups like goals, something where you're scanning. I mean, like you're mentioning, it's, I know a lot of these birds, I know the common species or maybe all like the blackbirds. Okay. This group is mostly blueing teal. And so I can kind of skip birds that maybe are very similar um, in size. And if they're close enough in good enough light, you can be like, okay, those are definitely blue and teal. But yeah, I, I think it's definitely based on being um, familiar with the common species. That's why people who are seen as skilled birders seem to be better at at picking out quote unquote good birds. It's there's a certain there are certain assumptions that you make as a birder that you can feel pretty safe about making. And once you've made those, then you can kind of set things aside and then maybe lay a different level of looking, a different type of looking on these things that um, define those sort of unusual, the little wheat in the chaff. Definitely. I think about this a lot when I'm looking at flocks of gulls, like Marky was saying. And, you know, one of the things I really like doing in the, the winter and the early spring is pulling up and seeing a big flock of hundreds or thousands of gulls. And... You know, I realize that I often end up just sort of looking around with my binoculars mm-hmm. kind of on autopilot, just scanning through ring build, ring build, herring, 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 and not really not really identifying individuals as much, but letting letting my my eyes um, sort of wash over the flock until I see something that that really jars me back into focus. It's almost like kind of like <laughs> zen like gulling. But I, I often wonder if if that lack of sort of specific attention is like a positive or a negative <laughs> factor in my birding. Like, am I missing some really, you know, unexpected rarities that way? Or is that just a kind of an enjoyable thing to do and let your let your mind wander while you're looking at big flocks of birds? Yeah. Not really sure. Now that we're sort of looking ahead past all of this, what do you guys have on your birding bucket list for those glorious post-pandemic days? Well, I think, Nate, after I go to Bentonville, Arkansas to Mm -hmm. see my newly legitimized Egyptian goose, (laughs) uh, I'm really looking forward to getting back and leading birding tours, uh, actually doing some birding travel around the world and getting to to see some of the, the people that I haven't seen for a long time in in other places and uh, get to go birding with my uh, my tour groups again, but I will say I've I've actually had some really great birding experiences, kind of in a socially distanced manner during the pandemic, and I I think that that's that's one of the things about birding that's so wonderful is even when it feels like the world is just falling apart all around us, um, there's still this kind of unifying thread that can hold us together and keep the community kind of moving forward. And so that's, that's been really fun for me to see during this otherwise rather grim year. If anyone out there has any memories of Tom they're willing to share, I'd be honored to put them on this podcast. You can record them on your voice memo app on your phone and send them to podcast at aba.org. No pressure, of course, but if you'd like to share, I'm happy to accommodate that. 
The American Birding Podcast is brought to you by the American Birding Association. If you enjoy this podcast, the best way to support it is to join the ABA. You get a lot of great benefits, including our magazines, discounts to partners like Princeton University Press, Corner Lab of Ornithology, Beauty of Books, and more. Find out how to do all of that at aba.org slash join. Special shout outs this week to Steve Abbott and Nicole Allison of Citrus Heights, California, Cindy Dobrez of Grand Haven, Michigan, Mike Good of Akron, Ohio, Aaron Hall of Dallas, Texas, and Martha Smith of Memphis, Tennessee, all of whom recently joined the American Birding Association and noted this podcast as a reason for doing so. Thank you so much. We're so happy to have you. Welcome to the ABA and thank you for your support. Another thing you can do to help the podcast that doesn't cost a dime is to head over to Apple Podcasts and leave a rating or review. Your ratings help get us in front of more people and we certainly appreciate that. Technical production for this episode is by Greg Addington sitting in for John Lowry. Social media is by Maggie Fitzgibbon. Additional help comes from Greg Neese. You can find us online at aba.org on social media most everywhere as American Birding Association. On Blue Sky, we are at ABA Birds. Questions, comments, come to podcast at aba.org. I'm Nate Swick. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to bird like Tom. Till next week.